Not long ago, I was going through a period of intense interpersonal pain and suffering, responding as I'm sure many of you have done many times, and thinking it's not fair. I shouldn't have to be going through this. I should be able to have things work out my way. And asking God the question, why? Why can't I have things go the way I want them to? Feeling boxed in and trapped by circumstances that seem beyond my control. Circumstances I didn't choose. And during that time, the Lord directed my thoughts to a passage in the Old Testament which is rich in advice to us about how to handle suffering. So turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. On the back of your prayer sheet, there's an outline of the, our study this morning. The book of Lamentations was written at the fall of Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The Babylonians uh, besieged the city. There was much pain, starvation, death, and then ravaged it as they finally conquered it. This this, uh, book was written as a lament over the fall of the beloved city. The book doesn't tell us explicitly within who wrote it, but ancient tradition ascribes it to Jeremiah, whose experiences fitted explicitly. And there's no reason to question that. He was going through a period of real pain himself. This morning we're going to be looking at chapter 3, verses 1 to 38. In verses 1 to 20, he recounts the feelings of pain that he was going through and suffering. And indeed, he was ascribing all of the problem to God. He was hurting and it was all God's fault. And then something happens in verse 21 that turns him around and helps him to again have hope in his situation. In verses 22 to 38, he recalls for us a a body of important theological truth that helped him get a different perspective and be able to endure and cope with his situation. Let's first of all read verses 1 to 20. I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has broken my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is like he is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow. He set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I've become a laughing stock to all my people. Their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cower in the dust. And my soul has been rejected from peace. 
I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction, my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. Jeremiah was hurting. He says it's all God's fault. He says God was to me is to me like an enemy. He has uh, treated me like an Assyrian king who in his cruelty has walled a prisoner in with bricks and has closed him in to die. He has broken all my bones and, and uh, afflicted all my skin. He is like a devouring animal, a bear who is lying in wait for me and pounces upon me and he devours me. He says, God is cruel. He, is, uses, he uses me for target practice. So he takes his bow and arrow and shoots the arrows into, the, into my inward parts. God has sent me to be a messenger to this people, to Israel. And yet I'm a laughingstock to all the people. And I have been throughout these years as God has, has sent me with the message of impending doom upon this nation. He said, my life is miserable. I'm a wreck. And it's all God's fault. Now, I'm sure that there are probably some here this morning who are feeling just that way. You feel like life is not treating you fairly. Your boss at work never gives you credit for the things that you do. He always gives you more work than you can handle. Not enough time in which to do it. And then he yells at you and you don't do things the right way in a way he hadn't told you what you're supposed to do anyway. You're having financial problems. and Everybody else is, is uh, progressing financially. And you're getting worse and worse. If you're single, then you curse the urge to merge which God has given you. How unfair of him to give you this intense relational need and not meet it. And if you're married, you probably curse the day you said, I do. (laughs) It's not fair of God to promise you such great blessing in marriage and give you a selfish, stubborn mate like he's given you. Unlike you are. Well, I'm sure that, that most of us have felt this way at some time or other. Our lives are, are miserable. Everything's going wrong. It's not fair. And furthermore, since God is the ultimate one in control, God is not fair. Well, that's the way Jeremiah was feeling. But in verse 21, he says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. He did an about-face. He said, I call certain things to mind, and the this refers to the body of truth in verses 22 to 38. He says, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Things aren't so bad. Because mental perception determines the interpretation we place upon events. We can respond to a certain set of events in completely different ways. Sometimes when I spank Allison, she asks, Daddy, is that a little spanking or a big spanking? If it's a little spanking, then she might whimper, but there are, no, uh, there are no tears. If it's a big spanking, even though it might be the same uh, amount of force behind the hand, uh, and even though she might have on a blanket sleeper and not feel anything anyway, if I say big, then Rah! you know she falls apart. Because how we perceive an event makes all the difference as to how we respond to it. So Jeremiah tells us in the next verses some important 
theological certainties that we need to anchor in our minds so that when we're in the midst of suffering, whether it's now or in the future, as we will all be at some point, we can remember these things and we won't have to fall apart. The first thing he recalls is God's character. Verses 22 and 23. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And notice the contradiction between the aspersions against God's character that were made in verses 1 to 20 and the affirmations of his character in, in verses 22 and 23. I may feel like God is a bear. I may feel like he's unjust and cruel. It might seem like things are working out unfairly for me. And I'm getting a raw deal, the hand of a God who's heartless. And yet, when we think about it, and as we look at Scripture, we can know that God cares. We can know that he's loving, kind, compassionate, and faithful. Our problem is that is that we make our judgments based upon immediate and limited uh, perceptions of things. We don't always know what God is doing. And it appears at times like uh, he must be cruel if he's doing these things to us. Consider the case of, of a uh, Stone Age tribesman who was brought into a mission hospital because his appendix is ruptured. And he's uh, led into a room, he's promised hope, and then all of a sudden this nurse comes at him with a hypodermic syringe that looks very much like a poison dart. And he's uh, wrestled it to the floor and injected with this poison, and then he's placed upon a table. And next to the operating table, there's a, an array of glistening knives. And he wonders, what have I gotten myself in for? And he thinks, is this witch doctor going to cut out my heart and offer as a sacrifice to the gods? Are they going to slice me up and roast me and have me for dinner today? It's only his trust in the missionary who brought him, brought him there who, that enables him to maintain himself, to stick with it, to submit to the med, their medical care. Oftentimes, our perception of what God doing, is doing is no better than his ignorant perception of what the medical team was doing. We don't understand. And so we must focus our thoughts on the character of God. In spite of what it may appear that he's doing, I know that he is loving and kind. Unceasingly so, we're told. A young woman said to me not too long ago, I've been married for four years and it's been miserable and God has done nothing to solve it. It's unfair. He's cruel. He's heartless. He doesn't care. Jeremiah says, no matter what it might seem like, God does. His compassions never fail. As a matter of fact, they are new every morning. If we're honest with ourselves and with God, we can see every morning a new taste, a new perception of the compassion that he has to bestow upon us. He says that God's faithfulness is great. He is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. He has entered into a covenant with each of us as believers. He has promised to continue his good work in, in us until he completes it at the day of Jesus Christ. He has promised to be kind and to care for us as our Heavenly Father. We don't have to worry that he's going to give up 
He's not going to do anything for me anymore. So Jeremiah remembers God's character. The second truth that he anchors his uh, soul upon is the surpassing value of knowing God. Verse 24 says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Now the word portion indicates an inheritance. To the ancient Hebrew, the, uh, he would, would look to the inheritance he would get from his father. The biggest uh, amount of wealth that would ever come to him in his life. Jeremiah says, the Lord is my portion. He's my inheritance. And in him, we are wealthy. Now imagine that you have just gone to the post office to pick up a registered letter. You open it up and you find in the letter a statement that your long-lost rich uncle has died and left you the sole benefactor of his estate. And in the letter, there's a check, a cashier's check for $10 million dollars. And there's a note that more will come as soon as the major portion of his assets can be liquidated. But while you're in shock reading this letter, a thief sneaks up and picks your pocket, takes your wallet and runs down, runs uh, out in the street and down the sidewalk. And as you look up, you see that somebody has just run into your uh, beautiful 1972 Chevy sitting in the parking lot. It made a wrong turn. It bashed into it. Well, what do you do? Well, if you have your wits about you, you laugh. You say, so what? I had $50 in my wallet. Who cares about $50? I've got $10 million. They bashed in my car. I'll buy a new one tomorrow morning. Pay cash for it. But you know what we do? Oh, no. I was going to use that $50 to pay the phone bill. And if my car is battered in, I can't get to work and I'll lose my job. And I've got all those credit cards. And what could he... You know, there's a $50 limit. What could he charge on those? And all my pictures and my driver's license, what am I going to do? We focus our attention on what relatively are minor losses. Now, the human pain we go under is not minor, but in relationship to the value of knowing God, all setbacks that we have in this life, the dashing of all dreams and all hopes is as nothing compared with the value of knowing God. Jeremiah says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. And as we ponder the surpassing value of knowing God, then we set our hope upon Him. And so what if our circumstances don't work out the way we want them to? If we know God, we're fabulously wealthy. We're His sons and His daughters. At any time, day or night, whether we've been good or bad, we can go before the throne of grace to find grace to help and mercy in time of need. He's put His Spirit within us and can give us true love, peace, and joy, and hope. He's given us purpose and an eternal destiny, an age in which people are making up excuses for living, trying to find something they can latch on to. We can have the peace of mind to know that that we know God and that we're, our destiny is with Him. And we have purpose in this life. We're rich. He says, as I set my hope upon that, as I fix my mind upon the fact that I know God, I realize He is my inheritance, my wealth, then I again have hope. A third truth that he sets his mind upon is the fact that waiting is necessary 
often necessary, and it is good for us. Verses 25 and 26. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. God may make us wait. He may not answer every prayer or every wish instantly. It's not a genie that we, a magic lamp that we rub and a genie uh, that responds to every wish instantly. And yet we're assured that God is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So we're encouraged to hang in there because God will reward us in the end. He won't give up on us. He says that, that uh, it is good that we wait. It is good that we wait silently for the salvation of the Lord. The act of waiting is good for us. It's hard. I don't like it any more than you do. But it, it, uh, uh, it's good to have to do that. I'm appalled sometimes at how impatient my young children can be. They can be so immature. Of course, they're, they are immature. They're little kids. Uh, so selfish, so self-centered, so inconsiderate of the thoughts and feelings of others, always demanding and wanting their way right now. But as their father who cares, I know that it's not in their best interest for me always to jump whenever they snap their fingers. It's not in their best interest for me to always give them everything they want and meet every whim of their desires. The same way God, our Heavenly Father, knows that it is good for us to have to wait. It's good to not always get what we want. And through that process, we will mature. He says it's good that we wait silently for the salvation of the Lord. We don't have to gripe. We don't have to complain. We don't have to throw a pity party, invite all of our friends, and uh, say, woe is me. Tell me how bad off it is. You would never put up with a husband like this or a wife like this or a boss like this or whatever else you have. Uh, We don't have to do that. He says it's good that we wait silently for the Lord. Now, a lot of us wait by saying, okay, God, I'll give you 30 seconds to answer my prayers. You didn't do it. Well, I guess I'll have to take matters into my own hands. I gave you a chance. You didn't work. Uh, So I may have to pout. I may have to manipulate. I may have to cheat and lie a little bit. Uh, But you didn't take care of me. And don't you dare try to judge me for the things that I'm going to do. You abandoned me. That's our waiting. Jeremiah says it's good that we wait, that we don't give up hope, that we don't put a time limit, whether it's 30 seconds or 30 years, upon God and say he's got to conform to our mold. It's good that we wait for the salvation of the Lord and keep seeking him. Because we know that he's good. He will reward us in the end. Philip Yancey, in his book, Where is God When It Hurts? says, God is interested in soul-making rather than hedonistic paradise. Therefore, pain and trials are part of God's program. God wants to build us, not just make us spoil brats. And so he forces us to wait. We need to remember that when we're in the midst of suffering. And we want so much to get out of it. The fourth thing that Jeremiah recalls is the fact that the suffering that we're undergoing is a disciplinary yoke laid upon us by our good God. 
He says in 27, It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent, since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. He says it's good for one to bear the yoke in his youth. Matthew Henry says that bearing the yoke makes us humble and serious and weans us from the world and keeps us from being proud and unruly. He says it's good to bear the yoke in the youth, particularly because in our youth we tend to be strong-willed and arrogant and think we can conquer everything. We can do it our way. We don't want to submit to anybody. But bearing the yoke is good not only in our youth, but throughout our life. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this about suffering. Josh Harkin said, The greatest earthly blessing that God can give to any of us is health, with the exception of sickness. I like that. Sickness has frequently been of more use to the saints of God, he says, than health has. If some men that I know of could only be favored with a month of rheumatism, it would, by God's grace, mellow them marvelously. I would not wish for any man a long time of sickness and pain, but a twist now and then one might almost ask for. A sick wife, a newly made grave, poverty flat, or sinking of spirit might teach lessons nowhere else could be learned so well. Trials drive us to the realities of religion. Our afflictions come to us as blessings, though they frown like curses. It's good for one to bear the yoke in his youth. Jeremiah calls upon us to submit to the yoke of suffering that God has brought our way. He says, let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it upon him. God is behind it. He's picturing us like wild, undomesticated oxen who need to be tamed. And the yoke is placed upon us to make us useful to our master. And yet, like the oxen, oftentimes we rebel, we resist. And the newly yoked ox will resist that yoke. He'll try to get out of it. He'll try to go his own way, be his own master. And yet, what's the result? He just rubs his shoulders raw and ends up having to, to uh, plow the field anyway. We, too, resist God. We resist what he brings into our lives. We fight against it. And yet the result is just more pain and suffering for us. He says, let him sit alone and be silent, since he has laid it on him. Job reflected a proper attitude when in one day he learned that he lost all of his wealth and all of his children through a series of calamities. And his response was not bitterness, But he responded by saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord is given. The Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This kind of submission is described for us in uh, Lamentations by Jeremiah in verses 29 and 30. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. He's describing the submission of a defeated soldier before an oriental king. He would bow down in the dust of the dirt to show, I am conquered. You are, my, you are the victor. You are my king now. He would give his cheek to the smiter. As a soldier would, would make fun of the captive, he might smack him in the face. 
And the soldier then would have two options. He could resist it, so his t- hands were tied behind his back, and all he'd do is get, would antagonize his, his uh, opponent, his enemy, and he would get beat up. Or he could recognize the fact that he was not in control, turn his other cheek, give his cheek to the smiter, say, have your way. And we're called upon to submit to God what he has brought our way. We're not going to get out of God's will. We're not going to be able to resist the things he has planned for us. We can resist and fight against him when when we let our minds proceed like this. It's not fair. It shouldn't be happening to me. It doesn't happen to other people. I don't deserve this. I can't take this. I won't take it. And thus we fight against the things that God has brought into our lives. We're called upon to submit, as Job did, to say, Lord, you're the boss. You know better than I do. I don't like it but teach me to be content in you. Not my will be done, but yours. And only as we submit in this way, we give up the fighting, can we be at peace. Not only be at peace, but even experience real joy in the midst of our suffering. In verses 31 to 38, he tells us some truths that will encourage us to submit to what God has brought our way. First of all, he says it's not going to last forever. 31 to 32, For the Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion, according to his abundant loving kindness. It may seem like it will never end, this pain that you're going through, but it will. It won't last forever. It may seem like God is rejecting you and that he's closed the windows of heaven, won't even hear your prayers. But it's temporary. God in the end will demonstrate to you His compassion, His unceasing loving kindness. Furthermore, he says in verses 33 to 36 that God is not unjust. I'm sure that you felt it's, it's unfair. Life is unfair. I shouldn't have to have this. And if we recognize that God's in control, then we're really saying God is unfair. And some of us will actually... Uh, pass judgment upon God. Say he's not fair, he's cruel, he's mean. But Jeremiah reminds us, he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. He has three different instances of the strong Uh, oppressing the weak because of their strength. He says, yes, God is strong, he's almighty, but he doesn't do this thing, this kind of thing. He doesn't willingly afflict the sons of men. He doesn't enjoy doing it. Just like as a father, I don't enjoy spanking my children. I have to do it. I don't like it. I don't like to inflict pain upon them. God views the pain, the suffering that he has to put us through as a necessary evil in the process of building us, of making us complete as human beings. And finally, he says in verses 37 and 38, that God is sovereign. He's in control. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Yes, it's true that people are responsible for their actions. And if you are suffering today because of the unjust actions of somebody else, they're going to have to give an account to God. 
one day. They're responsible. It is true that disease and death entered the world because of the fall of man. And yet, Jeremiah also tells us here that God is in control. Ultimately, all that comes our way comes because it's the plan of God for us. Now, I find that very helpful personally. If I feel that I'm just the victim of blind fate, of some unfortunate circumstances, then it's very easy to slip into a slough of despond, be overcome with self-pity. And we even say to one another, how unfortunate. Well, nothing. There's no matter of fortune about it. God is in control. And if he has brought something our way, it may be very difficult, may be painful to bear. And yet he is there with us. He's a good, just, compassionate God who has brought whatever it is for our good. My daughter Christy uh, has a penchant for getting up between 5.30 and 6.30 every morning, which is okay if I've been gotten to bed early, but if I've been up late at one of our elders' meetings for 11.30 or something and I don't get to bed till 12 or 12.30, getting up at 5.30 is not very uh, uh, agreeable to me. And I don't like to go on, on uh, with a loss of sleep. And it's very easy, particularly at that hour of the morning, to be overcome with feelings of anger and, and feeling that's, that's not fair. This shouldn't be happening to me. How can this little person... You know, this big be controlling my life. And as I focus upon the unfairness of it, then I just, I just am overcome with anger and self-pity. But if, if I can recall to mind the truth of verse 37, who is there who speaks even at 5.30? And it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. If I can recall that this is part of God's plan, He wants to mature me, He wants to make me flexible, he wants to make me dependent upon him, not my physical sense of well-being through a good night's sleep for my contentment, then I can accept it. I don't have to fall into to, uh, bitterness and self-pity the rest of the day. Well, no matter what you're suffering today or what you're going to suffer tomorrow, it's unbeknownst to you right now, we need to firmly fix these truths in our mind. The character of God. He is good. He is faithful and compassionate and loving. The great value of God, no matter how bad circumstances may be, we as Christians are fabulously wealthy. The fact that patience, learning patience and having to wait is good, but it's not agreeable to us naturally, and that God will reward us in the end. He's good to those who wait for Him. And finally, we need to remember that whatever the suffering we're undergoing is, it's a yoke placed upon us by God for good purposes, so that he can train us up, so that he can make us whole and complete, useful to him and contented within our, our own souls. Let's pray. As we turn to God in prayer, I want you to think of your own suffering right now. Whatever it is that you feel is unfair, you feel you've gotten a raw deal. You shouldn't be treated this way. You look upon your affliction as something that robs you of the possibility of contentment and happiness in life. Whatever it is, if you can, pray along with me. Oh Lord my God, I confess that I am limited in my perceptions 
and I'm selfish and twist things to my own advantage, to my own viewpoint. Lord, I have wrongfully judged you, hurled criticism against you for what you've brought into my life. I confess that now. And I ask, Lord, that you would help me to learn the joy of submission to you. Lord, purge me from all selfishness, from all the self-will that makes me want to rebel against you and resist. Teach me, O Lord, to submit to that yoke that you have placed upon me, to accept it as something good from your hand, not as an evil thing. Teach me, O Lord, to rejoice in you, for the joy of the Lord is to be my strength. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.